0: Uh, There we go. Uh,
1: This is a rather special occasion in the sense that we have had several uh, sessions on Darwin. One that goes back by about 30 years when Bruce Hunt gave his first talk to uh, British Studies. So we're very glad that Bruce is back with us. And during the afternoon, we will be able to benefit from the scientific. Uh, knowledge of Philippa Levine. Our speaker uh, is John Alanez and the title of the talk is Her Majesty's Beagle, His Majesty's Beagle in the New Era of History of Biology. John is in the Institute of Historical Studies in the History Department. Uh, He's taught at the University of California Uh, And He has recently completed a monograph, Darwin in the Deep, Marine Invertebrates, Evolutionary Methodologies, and the Emergence of Natural Selection.
0: John. First of all, thank you everybody for joining me on this rainy and then very humid and sticky day. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm very glad that my socks are not wet. Um, and I'm very happy to be here with such esteemed colleagues. Uh, as, as was said, I recently completed my monograph, which is, thank you, uh, <laughs> uh which I'm happy to reemerge from the dark room of which, of the library of which I was working uh, and, come back and, ex- um, share a couple questions with you that my research has sort of exposed for me, specifically on the conjunction between social context, specifically British imperialism, and the formation of scientific knowledge. Um, as I already said, my, my forthcoming book, Darwin in the Deep, examines the formulation of Darwin's theory of evolution. Um, how was the theory itself developed? Instead of focusing on Darwin specifically, if we want to look at mechanisms or the way, that, uh, the way that scientific methodologies change over time, I don't focus on the people. Instead, I've shifted this on to a study of objects, the specimens that are handed down generation to generation to generation, and seeing how each person, each of these, these um, cohorts makes sense of these objects. Specifically, I found out that these crazy marine invertebrates known as crinoids, which always creeped me out, um, but they crawl around and they fly, it's, it's very disturbing. Uh, but they f- show up with amazing regularity from the very beginning of paleontology, or what I call zogeology, uh, in the term of the people of the time, um, to right before the evolution debates, the speciation debates, extinction debates, leading up into Darwin after, and even Darwin's disciples continue to use these. Now, one thing that I'm fond of of saying, uh, Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation, uh, the anonymous book that happened right before, evolutionary book that happened right before uh, On the Origin of Species, mentioned crinoids twice as much as the creator in this particular text. So I was surprised. I didn't know what they were, and it's so strange, so I had to find out, and it ended up becoming a book. So... As part of this, of course, um, one of the major episodes in the formation of natural selection as a theory and as a practice as well, as I argue, um, was Darwin's voyage bo- aboard His Majesty's Ship Beagle, commanded by, of course, Captain Robert Fitzroy. Uh, it sailed from 1831 to 1836, being one of the major first British uh, versions of this zogeological research that goes out on an expedition, and Charles Darwin famously acted as companion gentleman naturalist uh, aboard this expedition. It was aboard this voyage that Darwin himself collected the raw material that he later used to secretly formulate his theory of natural selection. And I say secretly in that he was involved with a lot of geological debates, but he was very nervous about letting his zogeological, his evolutionary work, out into the public or out in front of his colleagues too early, before he had enough evidence, before he could defend such a um, a contentious idea. And so here's where he gets his specimens. This is where he develops the beginnings, the seeds of his ideas. In fact, most other elite members of the evolutionary debates later on, or the species debates before Darwin, um, also had accompanied naval expeditions, much like this one, uh, in some capacity. And I'll talk about them a little bit more in the future. And most of them actually admired Darwin's voyage. A lot of them speak about walking in Darwin's footsteps or saying they saw the same tree or the same objects that Darwin had seen aboard uh, this voyage itself. This also means they shared a commonality as experts in marine invertebrate zoology. Again, this is one of those moments when the objects, the the practice of going aboard the voyage, the objects they actually pick up along the voyage um, give them this common experience and an object that they can use to negotiate and argue over their ideas. I have, however, run into something of a problem regarding what context is important to my story. Every historian. When we write a narrative, we have to choose what is good context, what really mattered, what is interesting for the reader to know at the time, um, but what falls into the background. And this gets to the core of something in history that I find really, really important for me to, to have to do in terms of writing my book, but also towards something that happened here many years ago, C.P. Snow and so forth, asking, what is the boundary between scientific knowledge and this historical context, the, the practice of history? What role do they really play on each other? How do they collide, if at all? Specifically, I want to know what social factors were most pertinent to the development of Darwin's theory. What do I actually put as important in my argument? There is, of course, a deeper question running beneath this project. What role do overarching social factors, such as those we study in British studies, right, and and my other colleagues in other departments, um, what other factors play a part in historical events? The study of causation is important not only to historians, but also to those who wish to build something from our historical narratives. We can use these building blocks for policy, social programs, and to better understand how we can act in a more moral or more informed way. So Isaac Newton once famously said that if he sees any further, he does so because he stands on the shoulders of giants. In this particular instance, I stand in between them, which is a very nerve-wracking thing, um, especially for a young scholar in Darwin studies. Um, Consider on one hand the work of Adrian Desmond, who situates the development of evolutionary theories in radical 1830s London politics. To him, Corn Laws, slavery, and potential revolution were one of the primary shaping forces, as he argues, of biological theories during this period. So here we have on one side that the Corn the Laws, the politics, um, and the people who are situated, scientists are people as well, uh, situated within these politics too, that they are guided primarily by some of these factors. He doesn't argue that it's the only factor, but he says it is a large one. I believe that there is an assumption about the effects of politics on the readership and assimilation of scientific knowledge embedded within his argument. It implies a sort of, um, I hesitate to use the word, but flattening of historical causality. Uh, I want to ask what role do do common people, lay people, um, play, and what influence do they have on the durability of scientific ideas? I believe they have one but I think it's time to ask, what is it? I'll juxtapose this to the other person on my other side, uh, who is Sandra Herbert's Charles Darwin geologist. Here, Sandra Herbert actually follows Charles Darwin's career. It's more of a disciplinary study. How did he get trained in geology? What specimens did he use, which of course is important to my own argument, and then how did people make sense of them? Sandra Herbert primarily focuses on individual actors as discrete units of historical causation. So what, what role did British imperialism play for Darwin specifically? Darwin desires adventure. He'd already planned to take a scientific trip to the tropics before he had been offered the position aboard the Beagle. There's also Um, So in some senses, she says that there is a role that imperialism played, but it was not necessarily a large one. It was an honest one, but not very much. In reality, the cause, Darwin's desire for scientific adventure, to make a name for himself, was enough to explain what he did. I also believe that there may be a potential perspective bias in this account. Um, She states that the Beagle crew took only maps with them, from their expedition, um, but I believe this to be incorrect. Specifically, um, I wanna talk about the people on this picture that may seem in the background. Specifically, the indigenous peoples who were taken on the first, uh, the first voyage of the Beagle by Captain Fitzroy, taken back to England as captives or purchased people, taught English, good Christian morals, and then sent back to spread British ideas and civility to the rest of South America. It didn't work, by the way. Specifically, these people have names. Yokoshlu, Eliparu, Orundeliko, and one person who was forgotten, renamed Boat Memory, ironically, And we have lost, he died of smallpox, and we do not remember his name now. So I'll talk about this as a potential cause to remember more fully who is aboard the Beagle at this time and why the Beagle expedition was put out for a a second voyage. But first, I want to stop and ask how does one actually establish? Historical causation. How do we know what is important in a historical story? From this, I'm going to pull from my experience in philosophy of history, as well as epistemology, which I am not an epistemologist. I study people who study epistemology. So if there are any philosophers here, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but bear with me as I, as I talk about this. Um, There's there's an example that people use when talking about historical causation. Let us say that somewhere in this building, a match is struck, dropped accidentally, and part of the ransom center, or wherever you are, burns down. Let's say that a lawyer or a historian asks, what caused this fire? We could say, of course, it is the striking of the match. The dropping of it, the negligence, the presence of that action, that is the cause. Uh, in which case I believe that would be true. However, a clever lawyer or perhaps an unclever lawyer might instead argue that it was the presence of oxygen in the room instead that is a cause of the fire. In fact, it is necessary for there to be oxygen in a room for a fire to happen. However, in terms of history, we would say this is sort of normal. It just sort of falls in the background. We assume that oxygen is there. There are moments when that doesn't matter. Actually, that's not the case. Uh, In which case, for example, a chemical factory, in which the the introduction of oxygen into a process actually does become a causative factor. If there's an error, oxygen is present, fire begins. So how do we distinguish between these two what is important and what is not? First, I'm going to say that there are two things that I'm going to use. The first is the condition of counterfactuality. What does that mean? The condition of counterfactuality says that every time we make a historical claim, the match caused the fire, there is an accompanying opposite claim. If it were not for the match, the fire would not have happened. So we create a counterfactual history, and we say that it was an important part of it. Without this thing, the event would not have happened. However, the second one is a mechanistic connection. For example, if you flip a light switch, we can say the light switch caused an electronic device to come on because it allows an electrical current to be able to flow where it wasn't before, and that mechanism can be shown to cause that effect of the light. So, what I'm going to go through specifically are some of from the primary documents, I'm going to look straight back into the primary documents and ask, "Can I find, or do I find, imperial connections, direct imperial connections that meet these two conditions? Right? Specifically, I'm going to talk about cultural assimilation first. We understand that historical causation is complex. There are multiple factors that go into it. So we'll look directly again at this at this matter and the primary material for it. In Fitzroy's narrative, we have him explain that the Beagle expedition originally was not going to be sent out a second time. This is important because Robert Fitzroy had given his word as a gentleman that he would return these children back to their hometown to their mothers and fathers, and when the British Empire, the Admiralty, decided that they were not going to send the expedition, he protested. Uh, Fitzroy was a rather passionate man, one who held his word. I hear a chuckle. I'm saying an understatement, obviously, and he, um, he wanted to keep his word. In fact, one of the people, Boat Memory, had already died from smallpox, and that weighed heavily upon his conscience. He protested to the Admiralty, Um, and already was in the process of um, chartering his own boat to take himself and these captives back to South America to drop them off specifically in their tribe because he knew that if they were dropped off in any other tribe or any other community, they would probably be killed, and he didn't trust another captain to be able to drop them off exactly where they were before. I quote from his specific narrative and other primary documents, agree with this, that an entire change, he said, had taken place in the views of the lords of the admiralty not to send the second expedition. And there was no intention to prosecute the second survey. I naturally became anxious about the Fuegians. After he protested, the admiralty changes its mind, specifically, and a number of people actually inquire about this changing of, of the mind of the admiralty. Specifically, I want to point out Reverend William Wilson, who asked Captain Fitzroy if it was okay to send a missionary along with him on the voyage in order to, and I quote, extend the benefits of civilization, meaning their culture and their religion, to the Fuegians. So I would argue that, in fact, one of the direct causes of the second voyage, the one that Charles Darwin had been a part of, was in fact directly tied to this cultural assimilation uh, that was on the part of both Fitzroy and through Fitzroy the Admiralty as well. So let's go on to mechanism then. Can we actually say that, all right, the, the voyage went out, but what about Darwin? What about Darwin's collecting of the specimens? Maybe that was just context in the background, and instead it wasn't directly connected to his collection. But I want to argue that in addition to the previous my previous point, each of the survey points was chosen for their strategic imperial value. As just one example, uh, when the letter from Francis Beaufort, the uh, hydrographer of the Navy, uh, was giving his orders for the Beagle and to Fitzroy, he had actually mentioned each of the stops and what they were supposed to survey for, what scientific thing they were going to investigate, and the reasons behind it, so so Fitzroy would know when to stop. Because Fitzroy sometimes didn't know that. And so he said at one point, for example, between these two bodies of water, Fitzroy, you don't need to survey them completely. Specifically, why is because it is not likely that for the purposes of either war or commerce, a much more detailed survey account will be necessary. When it even comes down to the study of coral reefs, it is because they don't want their naval ships their armies, if necessary, or their commercial vessels, hopefully, to sink when they are coming to trade or otherwise influence South America. So I can say that, in fact, every stop that Darwin made along the way was specifically guided, literally guided, by an imperial agenda. This was surprising to me. (laughs) Originally, I was a little more skeptical of this account, uh, but I want to argue now that imperial context matches both factors, both mechanistic and direct, counterfactual, for establishing historical causality. We know that at least one major factor was British imperialism. This is contrasted to, for example, the Corn Laws, which I think are important in the conversation about the reception of evolutionary ideas, but perhaps not, don't actually meet the causation necessary to make this hard claim. And this is me sort of switching sides, as it were to say, from one into the other. A cautious causation, I might say. there are consequences and implications to my point. I can make this about the Beagle voyage, but again, what I'm invested in is not focusing too, too hard on Darwin himself. I think that Darwin was a part of a larger network, a group of people who are all arguing over natural selection. One individual, one argument means nothing in science unless other people pick it up or other people are willing to engage with it. So what I did in this chapter... Um, was to step back and say, okay, if we can say this for the Beagle voyage, what does it mean on a larger network level? If we say that imperial context actually did have a direct cause of effect, what was that effect? I can look at the voyage of HMS Beacon, of which Edward Forbes was deployed on. Edward Forbes um, was a Manx naturalist. Specifically, he looked at marine invertebrates, these crazy crinoids I was talking about before, And he wants to know what they say about the boundary between species. How do we know the relationship between species? In his mind, he's talking about the creation of God and what is in the mind of God when he created one starfish versus another. What does that tell us about his plan for nature? Originally, he was not going to be a professor. He was having a difficult time getting a position or post, and he was going from place to place, giving lectures and so forth, doing his research projects, Um, but he wasn't getting any sort of break until the captain of the HMS Beacon contacted him and said, will you please come with me? Be my Darwin, in a sense. Come with me and survey the Aegean Sea. He did, he researched the starfish, he established um, the limits of undersea life, how far deep it goes, he ended the voyage a little bit early because he was actually given the, the fame that he got from this voyage, gave him enough prestige to then be appointed, to argue for and then be appointed to a position at the University of College of London, which as soon as he heard he had a chance, he ran back, he got the position. I would too. <laughs> <clears throat> he actually coins the term zogeology for the purposes of this lecture uh, or this talk. Uh, zogeology is paleontology but it's actually a a zoological question. So what is the history of life, right? Both living things as well as their their, uh, fossils. Oh no, it doesn't work out in this one. This is T.H. Huxley, I apologize for this. T.H. Huxley is known as Darwin's bulldog, right? Um, T.H. Huxley was actually originally down on his luck as well, right? Uh, He was born to a poor family Uh, He wanted to study medicine to be able to um, conduct science to become a naturalist. And so he enrolls in medical school, gets a position aboard the Rattlesnake, and is sent out on his own voyage. He is trained specifically by Forbes because of this imperial connection. The captain introduces Huxley to Forbes, saying, here is a man who has already been a part, has done something very similar to what you're going to do, and I want you to learn from him, and he trains him in zoology. Huxley then goes on to do his research on biological individuality, right? So what is the difference between these, again, marine invertebrates that seem to be able to break apart and live separately, but also come back together? Which is, again, this question of species. Or we can look at Joseph Hooker later on. Who wanted to make a name for himself? So like the man that he admired, Charles Darwin, he got a position, a medical position, trained for this medical position, specifically for this voyage, went out aboard the HMS Erebus, and was sent down to Antarctica and to Australia to do a survey. Now he is actually interested in botany, but in many of these areas that he's going to go, there are very few plants, right? Uh, instead, Ross, the captain, is deeply interested in marine sedimentation. What are these marine invertebrate things in living in the, the water that are going to die and fall and turn into rocks later on? He, Hooker then becomes interested and an active participant in this, again, zoology following in the footsteps of Darwin and the other people who came before him. Actually, what happens to the the specimens that he uh, collects. Um, Ross comes back. Uh, he, sadly, one of his children die. Um, his family life is very difficult and he falls into depression and the, the actual specimens end up becoming destroyed and ruined. And every time Hooker sees or sees somebody speaking about marine sedimentation or marine invertebrate biology, uh, he says that he's you know, racked with pain of, of a lost opportunity to do more research or contribute to this. We again ask, What is the role of British imperialism to the development of this evolutionary program, the zogeological program? Uh, These core people run as a a who's who list of Darwinian importance, right? Forbes was the person right after um, Charles Lyell, that should he die, he was a little concerned about dying at all points of his life, Um, should he die? He wanted his manuscript to go to somebody that would be able to work on it and publish it. First person was Charles Lyell. The second person was Edward Forbes. Darwin's bulldog, Huxley. His right-hand man, Hooker. These are the Darwinian elite. Even the people who are, not the Dar- uh, who are anti-Darwinian, such as uh, Louis Agassiz, who's over in America, have similar experiences in their own imperial context. So their prestige their specimens, their ability to to actually be able to participate in this debate are directly tied again to these imperial agendas. I don't mean to overstate my point, right? I don't believe that all of this was a product. All the practices, all the specimens were procured from imperial sources. That's not true. I give a counterexample to myself in the British Association for the Advancement of Science Dredging Committee, which was, of course, mainly orchestrated by Forbes himself, so perhaps there is a deeper imperial connection there, but I don't believe it actually meets the conditions I was talking about before. I believe somebody else might have stepped up to be able to run this particular committee. In this particular instance, what happens is you have these gentlemanly naturalists who, as part of good middle-class Summertime activities, they go sailing. They take these baskets or nets, they throw them overboard and they're going to dredge along, they're going to to sort of collect along the bottom of the ocean floor to collect these specimens and then they're going to meet together to actually talk about what that means, what they found. Um, It's actually, reading those those particular archives is fun, they're very nerdy, I like them a lot. Um, However, in this particular instance, the the individuals themselves, the committee itself, makes calls for zogeological specimens, for specific research on evolutionary uh, research or the species question, uh, which are, of course, very influential to the debate in general over evolutionary theory. And so I want to say that not all of these practices are the result of imperial agendas. This is the most salient uh, instance when that was not the case, but it is one of the few instances that I think I can find that that meet the same condition of, say, Forbes, and Huxley, and Hooker, and Darwin. I'll make this case. Of course, as a historian, as a scholar in general, you have to put these ideas into words because you have to print something in your book, as my publisher is very keen on me saying. Um, This is how I worded it. (laughs) I am very nervous about this wording because I am still not sure. And I would like to ask uh, your help or expertise and feedback um, about this, because I think it's a question that we all share in some sense together. What do we make of our studies in the British Empire and so forth? What is, what is its, its influence? Uh, I, of course, say the evolutionary pro- program was intimately connected to British imperialism, but imperialism by itself did not cause the emergence of the discipline. I still think I, I can't help but feel like I'm making an understatement in some sense. I'm convinced that there's more to it there. I think that, that like I said, as I've researched this more and more, the British connections just become more pronounced. Um, but how to, to frame that causation has, has plagued me and I think actually my discipline for many generations. Uh, so I bring it up again. We're left where I'm left. And I hope to share with you a couple questions that I think come out of this. Specifically, I want to ask, where do we go from here? We know we have this case study, and we all study our own case studies. We all study our own a little corners of this problem. But I offer this one as a joint project, at least for now, of what do we do with this? How does this affect your research in some sense, because I want to know, I'm very invested in the the consequences of my claim um, for all of us. Is this an adequate measure of causation? Causation is an incredibly difficult thing. I think a lot of people have spoken about it in philosophy and history. I've never been quite convinced that anybody has really done um, a job that solves it. Uh, And so I don't think I have. Uh, but I think this is potentially a step in the right co- uh, direction. I'd like your feedback on that. Um, and then at a wider level, I'd like to ask, I believe that British imperialism is important, obviously. Um, in what ways was it important? I think it's time to start asking this question. And and what were the co- context and limitations of what we say it did in history? Especially something as complicated as science itself, which purports at times to be so separated from this other culture of history and society in general. With that, I want to give a lot of time for discussion. And so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up there. Thank you very much.